Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to my Grand Slam Journey podcast, where I, together with my guests, discuss various topics related to finding purpose, maximizing our potential, competitive sports, life after sports, and transitioning from one chapter of our lives to the next. Today's discussion is with my friend, a former colleague, and a professional racquetball player, Mitch Williams. Mitch and I started at Erickson at the same time. And funny story, back when we started, people made fun of us that in order to qualify and be hired for our team, you had to play a racket sport because three out of the four members on our team were racket sport players. Mitch and I discuss his upbringing, his journey to becoming a top professional racquetball player, what racquetball taught him, transitioning from his sport to what I call the normal civilian life, and Mitch's journey to becoming a sales telecommunications executive, which is very similar to mine. We also discuss the mindset that he gained by playing the sport and how he's applying the mindset to his current profession. During our conversation, Mitch gave great examples of strategic alliances and having a network of people who helped him get to different positions. We talk about the importance of timing in life, measuring what matters, and focusing on the things that make a difference. We discuss the importance of knowing yourself and what drives you to be able to find a better career, job fit, and also his fatherhood, Mitch being the only man in the house where him and his wife, Jessie, are raising three young daughters and also have two female dogs. What stood out to me during some of the stories that Mitch shared is the great partnership that Mitch and Jessie have. For context regarding timelines, this conversation was recorded in February and due to a number of reasons, I haven't been able to launch it until now. One of the key reasons is the editing process, which I am still iterating on. And as part of this episode, I decided to do a little experiment. At the end of the episode, there is a short, unedited, more of a raw, spontaneous conversation that I wanted to keep because I thought it was fun. And I would appreciate feedback from you listeners on how you enjoyed it. This would very much help me with my podcasting journey and how I think about unfiltered conversation, editing versus not editing, as that is still something I'm iterating on. I would be grateful for your feedback, which you can provide via Grand Slam Journey LinkedIn webpage or my personal webpage, grandslamjourney.com where you can find my email or submit a direct feedback via the feedback form on my website. Lastly, please refer to the show note description for some of my favorite quotes from this podcast episode. There are too many for me to read. And now, enjoy the listen. Would you like to introduce yourself, Mitch? My name is uh, Mitch Williams. I'm 39 years old. I live currently in uh, Mesa, Arizona, married with... Uh, three girls and I have two female dogs, so I'm greatly outnumbered. <laughs> I uh, uh, have a professional career currently in telecom and sales 
and previous life prior to real world, I played uh, racquetball for a living. And, you know, I kind of spent a lot of my time growing up in a bunch of different areas of the United States from the Northwest to the Southeast and um, spent a lot of time in the Rocky Mountains in my uh, college and grad school career. So kind of have a good view of the country and, um, you know, all of the different things that that it can offer. Great intro. Thank you. I have a lot of these things on my two pages of notes here. So hopefully we'll be able to dive in into all of these aspects more deeply. Starting with the growing up and upbringing, where did you grow up? To maybe set the stage, my dad worked for Warehouser, which is a lumber company. So we either lived in the Northwest, so Oregon, Washington, or the Southeast as a kid, because that's where you can grow a lot of trees, right? I was uh, actually born in the Oregon coast, Coos Bay, Oregon. It's a small town, probably 30 or 40,000 people. And then uh, shortly after that, we moved to the Seattle metro area. So I grew up in Kent. I mean, still I'm three or four years old, don't have much recollection other than a staircase, a brown door and a a split level house at this point in time in my life. And then uh, we moved to Arkansas. I apologize to your audience if some of my English is slightly off, but I learned to talk in Arkansas. From preschool, kindergarten up through first grade, I lived in Dequeen, Arkansas, which was a town of about 500 to 1,000 people. I forget really what it is, but some of the best memories of my life. I grew up on a five acres of land out in the middle of nowhere where there was just trees and my parents, God bless their soul, it would never happen to today. I had a four-wheeler at five and I was blasting all across the yard. I was able to hit golf balls in my yard. Um, wow. I remember seeing my first turtle and thinking it was a snake. So I grabbed my baseball bat and started beating on the back of the turtle. So, I mean, <laughs> those were pretty fun times of growing up, right? I mean, literally, I just run around and you could do whatever you want because there was no neighbor even close. And um Then my dad got transferred out to Eastern Oregon. So I've spent a lot of my life uh, up through middle school in Klamath Falls, Oregon. And that's where I started playing racquetball um, and got introduced to the sport, which I'm sure we'll chat a little bit about that as this conversation goes on. And mid middle school, moved to Eastern North Carolina, a little town called uh, Little Washington or the original Washington in the United States. First town named Washington after George Washington, the first president. And that was on the Pamlico Sound and a great place to grow up in high school. You could do a lot of stuff and you're somewhat in the deep south where a lot of people don't get too worried about what a bunch of kids do in a very small rural town. So you couldn't get into a lot of trouble and you spent a lot of time on the water. So some of my fond memories in high school are spending some time on the, the, the Pamlico Sound and the Tar River and bridge jumping and just being on boats and everything else. So from that point, after high school, moved to Raleigh and went to NC State and did my undergrad and post-undergrad, uh, moved to Colorado to do grad school. And that was largely to chase my now wife. So I won in that conversation. That was a, a very interesting call. Remember the day like it was yesterday when I was sitting outside of my apartment on the porch and it was just pouring thunderstorm rain. And I, I remember calling her. I was all nervous. Hands were sweating. And I'm like, <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go to grad school in Pueblo. I'm going to be like four hours away from you. And the first response was, "Uh, I don't know if we're ready for that. And I'm like, well, I just signed up and I'm going. So not the first uh, response that you want, but I was persistent and won out in that conversation. So I lived in Pueblo, Colorado for four years, did grad school. And then after grad school, moved to Albuquerque and then uh, lived in Albuquerque for five years 
That was towards the end of my racquetball career, got hurt, and then took a job in Chicago. And Clara, that's where we first met and started working at Erickson pretty much at the same time. So, And then I think you're pretty familiar with my journey at Erickson, bounced around. You and I have both uh, done our tour of duty with Erickson, you know, Chicago, Seattle to Jersey, Jersey to Phoenix. And then that's kind of where I'm sitting here. And last year, took a different direction in telecom and went to work for a a different employer to see a different part of the industry. So that's uh, in probably five minutes, a long-winded answer of my upbringing. I love it. And thank you for sharing. I would like to slow down and dive into your childhood even more first before we go to the next part in your upbringing. What shocked me is how much you moved. I didn't know that. I obviously know you and I had the same route and Erickson are very similar and we moved around and I always admired how you were able to port your whole family with you. For me, it's easier since I only have a partner and a dog. Yeah. And really, my dog is awful. She's the worst one with the moves. She goes through at least two, three months of sorrow and mourning after her missing her friends. So I can imagine how that is with a full family. But it seems like you've done that a lot when you were a kid. And it's almost you're a professional mover and... Moving across the country, I guess now doesn't seem to be a big deal for you, or that seems to be the trend back when you were a kid. Yeah, so it was pretty much um, every about four to five years uh, I was moving roughly, right? Some areas were a little longer, but um, yeah, I mean, I think it gives you an an opening of not being comfortable in your environment all the time, right? And mm-hmm. having to learn to meet new friends, learn different cultures, learn different environments, learn different, you know, there's a lot of different geography and mm-hmm. rituals and all that across the, the country in terms of, you know, from the east, southeast to the northwest and everything. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's helped you know, I never realized it until I reflect on it. I think it's helpful in terms of how it's allowed me to inward focus to make sure that I get done what I need to get done. And, you know, there's good in every place where you move and look at and live. There's positives and negatives. And I think being open to finding the positives is, is probably a pretty big eye-opening experience when you hop around a little bit, because every place has its unique charm in that regard. Yes, but... I think it's a one thing to realize when you're now older and one thing when you're growing up in it as a kid. You also have a sister, correct? Do you have other siblings? I do. I have a, a twin brother and sister. So they are 11 years older than me. So I was wanted earlier in life from my parents. I just uh, was not able to be created early on. So uh, I was kind of an oops baby after the fact. I'll be honest with you people that we're talking, <laughs> right? In a lot of respects, I was a kind of an only child. I do have a brother and sister and we're close and we chat, but I'm in grade school there in senior year in high school and indoor in college, right? So it was uh, more of they try to distance themselves from me because the more they stayed home and, and around, the more that they would have to do babysitting and take care of me. <laughs> I've become a little closer with them, obviously, with age, right? As both professionals and working now and in in that world. So it's gotten closer as age has gone. But, you know, in in a lot of respects, it was almost like two lives, not because we wanted it. It's just how do you relate to somebody 11 years older than you when they're in high school and you're third grade or whatever? You're learning multiplication or whatever you learn in third grade, right? Yeah. And that's funny. I have a 11 years younger sister. So I totally lived through the same difference you're describing. 
That is funny. Is that why you got the four wheeler in golf club so early? Do you- <laughs> exactly, exactly. So my yeah, in Arkansas, it was a culture shock for the family, right? Not necessarily living in the South, but the how small the town was. Like it was a big deal when we got McDonald's, Claire, in the town, right? Now, mm-hmm. now that sounds funny to say that there's a town in America that doesn't have a McDonald's, right? That is, yeah. And it had one stop sign and like two stoplights, right? I mean, like literally like a very, very small town. Middle school, high school, and grade school was all in one building, kind of segregated and separated, right? Just so you don't have elementary kids interacting with with high school kids, right? But I mean, it's all in the same location. So it puts a little thing in perspective. So coming from, you know, my brother and sister, poor, I mean, you look at them, they came from the Seattle metro area in Kent, right? And then they moved to, to literally a town that is probably the size of a couple of neighborhoods surrounding them, you know, and their whole world changed as a, a sophomore and a junior in, in high school. So that, that was a tough adjustment, I think, for them. And I, I think part of it is what we did as a family. I was too young to understand, right? I was playing video games and swatting turtles with baseball bats and hitting golf balls. And then we got into motorized type things. So my brother was riding dirt bikes and um, my dad bought dirt bikes and we bought a boat. It was great. Like when I look back at those times of my life, I mean, I was just, I remember opening up the freezer because it was, you know, hundred degrees outside in the summer and, you know, high humidity and it's just, you're sweating and you just go open the freezer, put your head in it and go back out. Right. I mean, those were, I literally was outside 24 seven, it was great growing up there. For my brother and sister, it was probably a pretty tough time of their life. I was just blind and immune to it. Yes. But good job to your parents. It seems like they were aware of the challenges and they tried to create some fun activities for you all to do. So yeah. you're not bored in this little town moving from, as you mentioned, the metropolitan areas on the West Coast. It sounds like a lot of fun. What you described, dirt bikes. I've never ridden one. Oh, you got to. You got to try it. It's a. Uh, I put it on my list. Yeah, it's just fun. It's a rush for a little bit. Not the safest things in the world, but uh, worth doing a couple of times. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned you started racquetball, or before we go there, I was trying to count the cities. How many times you've moved? Mm-hmm. Have you counted them yourself? Actually, how many times have you moved in your life? No, but we can do it. I haven't. So I was born in Coos Bay. So we moved to Kent, metro area. So that's one move. And then to Arkansas, that's the second move. To Oregon, the third move. To North Carolina, the fourth move. Within North Carolina from high school to college was the fifth move. Undergrad to grad school was the sixth move. Grad school to Albuquerque was the seventh move. Albuquerque to Chicago is the eighth. Chicago to back to Seattle was the ninth. Seattle to Jersey was the 10th. And I'm on my 11th move in my lifetime in almost 40 years. So every four years or actually a little less. (laughs) Yeah, That's that's crazy. You could write probably a personal blog or a notebook if you had time for it, how to move effectively based on all your experiences. Yeah, it's not easy. No move is is ever easy or fun. You know, I think you find some joy in it just because it's a complete crapshoot. Every move has got its own uniqueness, right? When you're younger, 
how do you stuff everything into a U-Haul the cheap as you can do it, mm-hmm. right? And then as you get older and a career is like, then you got houses and this and timing and mm-hmm. it's never fun, but there's always funny moments along the way that make you laugh and, and remember some specific things. Yeah. I moved to Chicago and moved two times within Chicago while I was there working for Ericsson, like from different parts of renting a house to, uh, to then purchasing a house. So, I mean, I didn't even include the the half moves within a city move. We'll start working on the houses and doing all that fun stuff. And I mean, there's there's a lot of good memories of it. it that's for sure. I want to slow down now just so my kids have slightly more stability in their life. But uh, I think it's been great. It, you see a lot of things. You learn how to conquer a bunch of different environments and yeah. ways to communicate and work with people, right? Because everything's slightly different, making new friends and you know, just learning at an early age. Hi, my name is Mitch. And talking to people, right, that have carried over to my adult life that, you know, not necessarily is the easiest thing for everybody to get out of their box. Yes, I would say you probably have to get comfortable talking to strangers, making friends, starting over, just recognizing a whole new thing. For me, I am someone like you, the moves, I don't particularly enjoy the move. And maybe that's why I move so often. I'm trying to get better at it. But what I enjoy is that new environment and even something as simple as going to find a new grocery store that you're going to go shopping to or your new routine that is sort of fun and gives life a different perspective. And as you mentioned, we have been fortunate to meet a lot of fun neighbors in different parts of the country. So yeah, yeah that is fun. And uh, I'm sure it adds on the skill of adaptability and flexibility. Yeah, it gets you good at small talk that doesn't have a lot of substance behind it. It's essentially like uh, friend dating is like the Jesse and I call it, right? It's like, you know, how do you size mm-hmm. up? Do you want to be friends? Do you want to take this to, ah, I don't know, these people, ah, this this is just <laughs> not a good fit, right? You you quickly work through that. It's, so it's, it's almost like instead of having a, you know, a dating life, you almost have like a friend type. Mm. Do I really want to take this to the next level? And now we're good as acquaintances. This is good. (laughs) I mean, it has its own kind of thing. Yeah. Going to racquetball, you mentioned you started when you moved to Oregon. Is that when you started? Yeah, I did. How did you come to that sport? Did anybody influence you? How did you recognize that, oh, racquetball could be fun. Let me try it. So uh, my dad played back in the 80s and kind of the heyday of racquetball. And, you know, he was God, in his early to mid 40s and, you know, high blood pressure, cholesterol, stressed at work, and he needed a, an outlet. So he started playing racquetball <laughs> again to, to work on his exercise and his weight and everything else. And by default, you know, I'm just kind of coming along and playing basketball and running around the athletic club. I mean, grabbing rackets and hitting. And so that really started about 10 at about 10 years old. So kind of a late start playing a sport, but it was just a lot of fun. And before you know it, I was in a junior program and playing other kids. And six months later, I played a couple of tournaments that were within like an hour drive from Klamath Falls in like Medford, Oregon, and did kind of good at it. And before you know it, Like uh, about 18 months into it, I'm playing junior nationals in Salt Lake City and uh, having my first real tournament with like eight, 900 kids around the country, all at uh, this club in Salt Lake. And you're like, whoa, this is a, there's something more to this than just knocking the ball around at a club. And I kind of got hooked at it. It was something that I could play and practice myself and you can knock it around and you could have fun and 
you didn't need anybody to play it with you. Like basketball gets only so fun shooting baskets for a while. Right. So it was something new to learn to pick up. And it, it was pretty easy to pick up because you play baseball as a kid and all these other things. So it's a ball and a racket. And before you know, it, I just kind of took to it. I had never thought about really like what was the deciding moment. It was mm. just something that I enjoyed doing. And before you know it, it became a huge part of my life. I mean, <laughs> until I was literally 29. Yeah. So from 10 to 29, 19 years of my life. I mean, that was pretty much eat, sleep and breathe. Right. And, um, mm-hmm. and it just continued to snowball to the point where you're really invested in it. So <laughs> that was kind of how it all started. And it was really my dad and me just spending time at the gym when kids could run around an athletic gym, right? Could you imagine like nowadays at a, at like an LA fitness or something, just having kids run around that place with a racket and a ball jumping around the court. I mean, it's just, <laughs> there was not all the liability concerns with the weights and all the other different things. So like the gyms were great for kids to play at. I mean, they, I was like a gym rat. I loved it. Was in there all the time, just doing anything that you saw. You're like, ah, I want to do that. Cool. Let's go try it. Right. I like playing with the bench press bar at like 11. You're like, yeah, cool. I'm, I'm getting strong. Right. I mean, it just could never happen for kids nowadays. And it's almost sad in some respect. Yeah. My kids, whether they play sports or don't, I mean, like there's so many rules and things that constrain and hold them back in some respect. Anyway, that's kind of getting off topic a little bit. I agree with you. That was a story that came into my mind. When I was uh, still living in Texas, my sister came visit me. And at that point, I was very much of a gym rat. And um, I would go to 24-hour fitness. I may have been 23, 24. So my sister, around maybe 13. And they wouldn't even allow me to take her with me. Because I wasn't her mom. And so, oh, she can't even go in because you need a guardian signature and you don't count as a sister. I got so upset yeah. because I totally lived and almost slept in the 24-hour fitness. Everybody knew me. I'm done. I'm canceling my membership. I got so upset. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously, it was the liability, right? So I, I agree. Sometimes those rules make it so much more complicated and yeah. not common sense and logic. So yeah. So it sounded like you picked it up you enjoyed it and learned really quickly. You were talented. You mentioned how long did it take you from when you started 10 years old to making the national championship at Salt Lake City? That was uh, the first time I played in it, right? So um, that first junior national tournament, I think I lost in like the round of 16s, my third or fourth tournament, right? It it was something that clicked, right? I saw the ball and how the ball bounced around the walls. And I was playing kids that had played for... A lot of kids that were really good started, you know, and this is no different in tennis or any really sport in that regard is there's something about time and playing as you're younger, it just becomes easier, right? And there's a point at some point in time at at age where everything equalizes, but there's just no replacement for on-court time, right? And learning Mm -hmm. the game. Yes. And it, it equalizes. But I mean, I was playing kids that have been playing since they've been like six. Wow it just clicked. It was something that was easy to do and play. And then Salt Lake, it was like the round of 16 I lost, if I remember right. And then the following year, we were in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the same tournament. And I would say my junior career of racquetball was unsuccessful in some respects. I had some good tournaments, national tournaments, but I played every sport. I was playing basketball, track and field. I was playing baseball. 
soccer, played a ton of soccer. So I didn't only just focus on racquetball. Like it was always like kind of seasonal for me in some respects. I would play, you know, once or twice a week always, but I never to the point of dedication 12 or 13 that probably some of my peers that we'd ended up playing professionally together at the end did, right? So it was always a lot of fun and more of a social thing for me for a lot of standpoints. But like in Oregon, there was a whole junior racquetball tournament. About every month, there was a tournament in a different city in Oregon. So most of it was Eugene, Corvallis, Salem, Portland, Oregon, you know, up up where more of the population was, right? And so we were playing tournaments. I was playing a lot of junior tournaments in Oregon and did well. I was the top junior in Oregon for my age group until we moved. And I was never able to figure out how to take it to be like a, a really good junior. And I think a lot of that was is, a, I wasn't necessarily focused totally to being that. And then, you know, there's something about knowing how to practice and having somebody teach you how to practice and and kind of train for a lack of better terms, right? So I was getting better just because I was playing more, but not because I was training to get better, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was kind of my junior racquetball career in a nutshell from up to about 14. Um, when then when we moved to North Carolina, I quit playing racquetball for two years, actually. So my sophomore year in high school, I picked up a tennis racket just because club, you know, in Eastern North Carolina, it was about a 30 minute drive for us to the next city over for me to play. So you had an hour, hour and a half commitment in a car to go play every day if you wanted to, or every other day, it just, it was a lot right in high school. I had other things that my mind was focused on. We'll just leave it at that. Right. Then playing racquetball and spending a lot of time in the car. Right. So I quit playing racquetball 15 to 16 or 14 to 16 and played tennis and Got really into tennis for two years and totally engulfed it, played junior tennis tournaments. And I guess my best way of describing that uh, crapshoot was I played tennis like a serve and volleyer did. And you could imagine the looks that I got in junior tennis with every kid playing baseline. I would just serve and run net. And because racquetball is a ball speed is faster than tennis. Like you hit serves at like 150 to 160 pretty frequently. And the ball speed during rallies is easily 120 miles an hour frequently and during rallies. So ball speed in tennis was not intimidating to me. It was like, ah, okay, great. Right. So I would literally run to the net. I would just play the net. So I played a style of junior tennis in North Carolina (laughs) that no other kid played. And I actually got pretty decent at it. I got like top 20 in the state there for a little bit at the 16 year old age group, just literally serving and volleying because it was so different than any kid had ever played in their life. And it just frustrated them. And I didn't ever look at tennis as something I was going to do as just something I liked playing and had a good time doing. It was funny how one sport translated to another and the whole ground stroke tennis and stand at the baseline and whale balls, right? I totally took it back to the 70s of serve and volley, right? (laughs) It made a lot of people shake their head. Obviously, when I got playing better players, it was very difficult for me to be successful and win, but I beat a lot of people I wasn't supposed to beat just because it was such a change of environment. It was like them playing a 40-year-old guy out there, and they've only been used to playing against their peers, right? So that was my kind of quick... detour from racquetball. And then I took it back up again. And when I took it back up, that's when I got a little more serious with it, made the junior national team and then started playing for USA. And and then when I became 18, 
I remember one of my friends at the time went and played a tournament, won it, made like $700 playing the tournament. And I'm like, man, he sucks. I just kicked his ass like uh, three weeks ago. Like that could have been my $700. I've been slaving away, stocking groceries at a grocery store. Hey dad, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to start playing more racquetball, my summer job. And I'm going to go play the next couple of tournaments. And it was one in Greensboro, North Carolina, and then one in like Richmond, Virginia. And I was driving in my summer year between high school and college. And I won the first two tournaments. And once I started making money, Clara, the hook happened big time. And then things got real serious because all my other friends were slaving away at six, $7 an hour jobs. And I was making 500 to a thousand bucks a weekend going to play racquetball and having a kick-ass time and drinking beer at 18 and doing all the things I shouldn't be able to do with people that were older than me. It was a blast. So that's when things took off with me and racquetballs when I turned about 18. That's giving you some insight into the progression of it. Yeah, I love it. And I have so many questions about what you just mentioned. First, what stands out to me is your talent. You play tennis, you made a top 20, you just transitioned from racquetball to tennis. And some people may think, well, all right, the record sports, they're similar. And in some ways they are, but they're very, very different. I'm just impressed how you were able to switch and adapt and the courage that you had to, well, I'm going to apply the racquetball approach and I'm just going to start my own game and serve and volley is what's going to work for me. So I can imagine at that point, the 16-year-old guys, especially in that age, yes, you can throw people off quite easily because they're still oh. growing up. So that is very, I would say, emotional stage. So when you start doing something that's unexpected and people don't teach, they probably don't know how to react to it. Exactly. That literally was it, Claire. It wasn't because I was better than them in any way, shape, or form. It's I, I had a good serve. I could hit the serve hard, right, from playing racquetball. Mm-hmm. I mean, and... I can hit a forehand and and you and I've talked, my backhand is absolutely terrible in tennis. Like it's a a slice and it's only going to be a slice. And, you know, I'd just run around and hit a forehand and then I would just run to net regardless if I was in the right position or not. It just freaked people out. Like literally they, they just never played. I think the difference was, is, is growing up, Mm -hmm. um, you know, racquetball didn't have the depth obviously that tennis had in terms of players and people playing. So like a lot of the times me living in small towns, I was playing adults in racquetball. So as I was growing up, I played so many different game styles because of adults. Mm-hmm. I almost learned in racquetball, there was a lot of different ways to win. You don't have to win just doing this one thing. You can win by doing this. And I just got beat by that guy doing this, right? So I learned at a very early age from like 12, 13, that you can hit the ball and kill the ball and be the best. But If I keep you in the back court the whole time, eventually you're going to make all the mistakes in the world. And I don't have to do anything. You'll beat yourself, right? So it was a very good mental awakening for me. And it carried over Mm -hmm. in tennis, which in tennis, you don't have kids playing a lot of adults and a lot of different game styles just because there's so many kids to play and so many junior tennis tournaments that have kids your age. It's almost by default. I want my girls to play tennis. Trust me. That's like the one thing I want. I want them to play tennis and pay for college and maybe go professional. I would love it. I would be like the rock star dad cheering and being crazy, right? But the one thing if I would have them do is play a lot of different people at a different age because there's no replacement for learning that you can win and lose whether or not somebody's better than you or hits the ball not as clean as you or whatever. I mean, that's the one takeaway that I think that really stuck with me. That was why I was successful in tennis. It wasn't because I was better than these kids 
I learned very quickly I could frustrate and win this way. So it, it snowballed. And it was very limiting against good players. I would get abused against the really good players, but the kids that were semi there, I could play with them just because I did something different. Mm. What stands out to me is you were young and you created your own style. And there was a lot probably from the learning that you had from racquetball and playing, as you mentioned, the diverse and wide variety of racquetball players and that allowed you to build your mental toughness to where you didn't go into overthinking. You were simply there having fun competing and uh, go on the court with simplicity and whatever you feel like playing and doing while maintaining your calm and being mentally tough. It seemed like your mental game was one of the things that was really strong and helped you win. Is that accurate? At times, I guess it was like a fuse. Um, <laughs> I had a long fuse, but when the fuse burned down, I'd lose it. I would say it was helpful being adaptable to transition that to, let's say, tennis as an example. I was slightly more stubborn in racquetball, only due to the fact that I had a longer seat time of playing it. I had a vision of how the sport needed to be played to win when I was younger, That necessarily, in the grand scheme of it, it really doesn't matter. That's the hardest thing to tell a kid mm -hmm. that you either coach or train. It doesn't matter how you win the game today. You win. You get to play tomorrow. And tomorrow, you can wake up and have the worst game of your life. And the next day or the next hour or the next match, it all disappears. And I think that's the hard thing that, as a kid, you have a vision of how the game should be played and done and not getting so wrapped up in it. So I would say yes. My mental conditioning from racquetball helped me outside of racquetball, mm -hmm. but I was almost set in my ways a lot of ways of racquetball that I needed to win and the game needed to be won this way. So in some respects, I wasn't as good as I needed to be in that. And it wasn't until the racquetball mentality when it really got good is when Jesse and I got married and I'm leaving her and I'm going to play a tournament. You kind of like, okay, I really should take this way more seriously in focus, right? And that's when the mental side of the game really took off in the later part of my career. And I dedicated myself and I had a strategy, I had a game plan, I had scouted people. And I mean, you don't know what you don't know and you learn as you grow. But um, I would be lying to you and anybody that listens to this if I was mentally strong because people saw me snap a racket over my knee, throw it in a trash can, walk around the court. Everybody has the moments, right? But It wasn't I was calm, cool, and collective all the time. I could get sideways a little bit. And I would say everybody at that age, we all have outbursts. You're growing up, you're learning how to control your thoughts. But it seems like the ability to be yourself, have your own game. And even if you snap, then the most important thing, how you come back and refocus. And coaching, that is another thing that stood out to me. Tennis is, or my life of tennis, It's very structured in a way as far as coaching goes in the tournament and the upbringing. But all the story you've been telling me, how did you train racquetball? Did you have coaches? It almost sounds like you were playing a lot against different players, picking tips and improving, hitting against the wall by yourself. But how does one train to be a great racquetball player? I think that's what held me back early on. Clara, when I was younger, is there was nobody that was, I would say, 
played at a crazy high level in some of the little towns I lived in. Mm -hmm. So you're playing with people that were lifelong bad habit racquetball players, but they knew some things. I didn't know how to practice. I really didn't know how to train with racquetball until I was really 18. So a lot of it, I would just go and I'd practice. Mm -hmm. I'd hit the ball against the wall, but there was a whole nother side of that, of lifting weights and doing speed work and agility work and situational practicing. Like, Hey, I'm down, I'm playing somebody, I'm down two points. Uh, I need to win the next two points. Yes. I didn't get to do a lot of that type of thought process until when I moved to Raleigh and started in college and then I was going to play, I was picking other people's brains that played the racquetball at a decently high level. How do you practice? How do you train? And it was a journey for me to figure out. But early on, it held me back, I believe, in terms of how successful I was as a junior, because there was nobody that taught you the right way to train. And there's 100% the right way to train, not overtrain and not do something over and over that can create bad habits. I mean, there's a lot of things there. So there's a lot of things I had to unlearn in my later part of my life that I did wrong for the first eight or nine years of playing racquetball. But yeah. overall, it it worked itself out in some respects, but you're spot on. That was the real learning experience for me in racquetball is how to train. And I kind of learned by fire because I was in school playing racquetball and grades obviously were as important as playing racquetball at the time. It's not like I could ever retire from racquetball. I knew we're going to need a job. So it was always like a 1B in terms of focus. Obviously, school was the biggest focus. It needed to get done. So even when I was in my, let's say, 18 to 23 or 24 in undergrad and grad school, I would play and train, but it was never to the consistency, the dedicated set time, you know, and there's a whole routine regiment, how you eat, how you train, how you wake up. And that's something that from a, like an athlete is hugely important because it's as almost as much of getting your mind ready to do something than the actually having your body do it. It's prepping your mind and there's all these things that lead up to help you be prepped, right? We could probably spend hours talking about that in general. Yeah. Learning to train and not having that early on was you pick up good habits and you pick up bad habits. It's a small sport, Claire. I don't want people who listen to this to think it's something larger than it is. It's not a sport you retire from. And playing racquetball, you're not making millions of dollars by any stretch of the imagination. You're lucky to break 100000 a year on a really good year. It kind of puts everything in perspective. As everything, the more money you can make at something, the more focus and attention and the more people that have perfected the craft are available to help you. Hmm. So it sounds like you didn't really have much coaching, right? Or there isn't official coaching, even when you were growing up, where you would have a coach and even a few times a week, he would tell you how to hit a stroke or how to create the tactic if you're in a specific situation. All of what you have learned was very situational based on the experiences and matches and training sessions you arranged with friends and others. Is, is that correct? Correct. Yeah, there was no, say, situational racquetball, really. There was one guy in Oregon that helped me learn how to swing and hold the racket. Some basic things. When you look at it through the journey of racquetball, we were scratching the surface of how impactful it was. And it's not taking anything away from it. It was influential and helpful, but there could have been a lot more early on of like, hey, you're hitting the ball way too far off your front foot. Your weight's way too far forward in your swing. You need to direct, you need to keep, you know, 70 to 80% of your weight on your back foot. 
keeps your swing stable. I mean, like all of these things that you learn as you grow. And that was all after the thought. And a lot of that was learned as I got into playing more competitive racquetball where there was money involved, where people are like, listen, dude, you're only going to be able to go so far doing what you're doing with your forehand right now. And you're like, oh, okay. So you pick their brain and you kind of learn and they show you some things. And that was the one thing I was an 18 year old kid. And some of the older guys took kind of a liking to helping me. And that was a lot of the insight and coaching is you kind of take like a semi-pro player that had played decently level high racquetball that has done it for 15 or 20 years and say, hey, you should probably think about doing it like this. I was a sponge and absorbed it. I took heart to it because it was something I didn't have a lot as a younger guy growing up, just more to the environment of not growing up in like an LA or New York where there's just a bigger pool of people to play or hit with. Yeah. And especially as you mentioned, when you moved every four or five years, you have to find your new group of people to play with. And those are small cities. I bet that's even more difficult to find somebody to play with. But also want to go back to the focus on the sport or lack of focus on the sport. Thank you. And the freedom that your parents gave you, because it seems like they haven't directed you much. You're good at this. This is what you should be doing. You had freedom to pick and choose. And it seems you were very athletic. You were a quick learner. You were able to apply things quickly once you get the focus done and improve. But if you look back, is that something you would change now? Was that freedom helpful for you in regards to gaining the athletic abilities and variety of your body strengths? I do. I 100% think it was, Claire. I, I think if I look at the focus that can happen on kids now, they get so laser focused. I mean, my brother, his kids have been playing soccer for very early on, but literally they really only played soccer. I played every sport. I love sport. I love the immediate response of a win or a loss. That's the greatest equalizer in life. Mm -hmm. I dig that mentality, but I think it's very important for parents and that have kids is let your kids play as many sports as possible because what they learn in one sport will 100% translate to another sport. So give you a great example of that. I didn't start playing soccer until I moved to Oregon. So I was like 11, 10 when I first time I ever kicked a soccer ball. You know, he had kids that since four or five playing soccer, right? I didn't know how to dribble or any of these things. I learned pretty quick. I guess where I was going with that, soccer really helped with footwork, endurance for racquetball. And that piece of the racquetball that I didn't train for, but the sport helped me understand that, ah, this is what you feel like when you get tired because of soccer. And then as I got a little older, I played goalie in soccer in high school And I was an animal in goalie because racquetball, the ball's low. You do a lot of diving. It was really easy for me to track a soccer ball and go dive and block and save balls. There's a lot of value, I think, of the cross-pollination of sports. And in the grand scheme of it, it's all movement. It's controlling your body and understanding how your body interacts to make it correct. And I think that's actually a hindrance to a lot of kids growing up. I mean, I play basketball, I play soccer with the kids, I play tennis with the kids. Like I want them to play and run around with as many things as possible because A, you don't know what they're going to be best at. And then B, I think there's a lot of, as I said before, a lot of value that they get from each sport and the experience from each sport. Yeah. And it seems like you were able to build this physical bank and athleticism that and helped you build up in the more adult focused life once you decided 
I'm going to do this. I'm committed and I'm going to work on improving my game. That seemed like it came to you really in the adult life that athleticism probably became handy at that point. Yeah, it did. So moving to your um, professional racquetball career, you played for almost 11 years. Yeah. You have 100 plus professional tournament victories, ranked top six in the world. Yeah. For eight consecutive years. Yeah. I think that's outstanding from consistency. I would love to dive into that. And uh, 2007 national singles and doubles champion, racquetball, male athlete of the year, and many more things here. Where would you want to start? What would you like to highlight? Oh, wow. I guess where to start? I think there's a couple very influential pieces of that list of things you talked about there. Claire, I would say 2007, when I was the male athlete of the year and I was the national champion, that really allowed me to play professional racquetball, that winning that tournament. My last year of grad school, I was playing for head racket sports at that point in time. And I had a contract worked up and it wasn't a contract that was going to allow me to play racquetball full time. It was going to be, hey, we'll help you get to tournaments. We'll cover the cost, but there's no salary to live off of or do anything. I was at a crossroads in 2006, 2007. What was I going to do with racquetball as a whole? And that tournament in Houston, I actually, right before I played the semifinal against the number two player in the world, before I beat him, I was supposed to go sign my next four-year agreement with Head Racket Sports. And the guy that was running Head at the time, <laughs> this is wild, like funny how things work in real life. I forget how he called me or texted me or whatever. And we passed. He says, hey, we can't meet. I need you to come in tomorrow. We'll do the paperwork and we'll sign it. And long story short, I won. I won the match. At the time, I was ranked like 14 or 15, but it wasn't going to be something that was expected by any thought. And then he asked me to come sign and I laughed at him. I said, you missed your chance. And then the following day, I played the finals and I won it. I won the tournament. And uh, that was the break point where I beat the number two, number five, like number eight player in the world, all basically back to back to back. And people were like, okay, this might be something breakout. So long story short, I kind of shot myself with some of the other racket manufacturers at the time. And Wilson obviously gave me a contract. And then I played for Wilson all the way until I got hurt. And they allowed me with a salary and paid for my travel and gave me bonuses on winning. I mean, it, it literally allowed me to do it full time. And it's funny that that one decision and that one match really changed when I was able to do or not do professional ragball. I mean, that's crazy to think about when you look at it in the rears, right? That was very big. And then um, I think the second big influential thing in my career was, uh, I kind of alluded to this, but when Jesse and I got married, you know, the one downside to playing professional racquetball, you're on the road like 45 weekends out of the year. Every weekend, I have to play a tournament to make money. You're trying to train, you're trying to keep your body healthy, but you're playing 45 weekends out of the year. It's craziness. It's in no way, shape or form how you need to prepare and train to win big select tournaments. It's almost a survival and a necessity to make money and keep yourself at a lifestyle you think you should be at, even though the sport doesn't afford that lifestyle. That's a whole nother mentality discussion we can talk about. But you become so wrapped up that you're playing so much that you never let your body heal. You never train properly. You never prepare for big events. And 
it wasn't until I got married that things really started to click. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is I, I just stopped playing as many tournaments because Jesse was a dental hygienist. She was making as much or more money than me. So I cut my number of tournaments back almost by half. Mm. I really only focused on the big tournaments. And shockingly, that's when my performance really got a lot better. And I had a really before I got hurt, I was seasoned to date ranked number two in the world uh, before I got hurt and made like four or five semifinals in a row. Everything was really clicking then. And a lot of it was early on. I never allowed myself to be successful because I was chasing a dollar and not preparing, right? So that's that mentality of how do you learn to be a professional? There's a whole nother conversation around that as well, but that was eye-opening. So that kind of led over to the professional life of how do you focus on the things that are really impactful? Because I was chasing everything playing racquetball. Hey, yeah, you want me to go play? Yeah, I'll play the tournament. It's a $2,000 purse. Great. Let's go play it. Did I need to do that all the time? No, but it was young. I want to make money. I'm out of school. This is what I do. You're crazy not to do it. So that was an interesting inflection point. If I were to cut my racquetball career into a couple of different segments, those were, as my professional life, were two pretty impactful things to learn from. That timing is (laughs) kind of everything in life. And what you do with that time and that opportunity is important. And then how do you step back and really focus on what's important and how do you make yourself better? I probably said a lot there and that was kind of the professional career in a nutshell. And I would say what you just mentioned that applies to probably everything in life and even personal career we have now and tennis and many other sports. But it seems like it's at that point you mentioned once you and Jesse got married, you became focused, but you also become more selective and strategic. Yes. So you almost seem to rewire that Competing at every tournament is not what is serving me well. Perhaps I choose the most important ones and build in my training schedule around them and focus on making impact at those big tournaments. And that actually helped you become better. Is that accurate? 100%. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a big mindset shift to make. Yeah. Even the training and how do you adjust your training and be mindful with dialing it and focusing strategically on the key important things. Yeah, it was kind of hit on the training thing for a little bit. I'm kind of lucky. Jessie's a really good athlete. She played junior racquetball and swam and played track and soccer. She's very athletic and was a better junior racquetball player than I was. <laughs> and she goes, you're playing too much. You every day are, are grinding and your body's not healthy and you're not mentally focused. You need to peel it back. And I was like, hmm. So she was helpful to sit down and we talked about it. We whiteboarded on pen and paper of here's where we need to focus. And I built the between bricks of that. But a lot of that was driven by her and what she learned in her journey through racquetball is like, you can only peak, but so many times a year, you need to be focused on when you want to peak and how you're going to peak and train to do it. I guess it hits home more when your significant other says, hey, dumbass, you're, uh, you're overdoing it, right? So that's in a <laughs> nutshell what happened. It was kind of eye-opening. You know, we're fine. I'm working. I got a job now. I'm out of school. Like, figure it out. Like, it's not the end of the world. So that really is what springboard. And the unfortunate thing at that is I only really got about 12 to 14 good months of playing like that before I got hurt. And mm-hmm. those were the best 12 to 14 months of my career ever. Yeah. And you injured your shoulder at that point, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I dove for a ball and 
dislocated my shoulder at our largest tournament. It was the US Open. It's in Minneapolis. It's a four-wall glass court and tennis channel covers it. And I was two points away from making it my fifth semifinal in a row. And I just beat the guy I was going to play in the semifinals two weekends ago. And the thing was set and I just dove for a ball as you normally would do. And boom, shoulder dislocated, ripped my labrum. And (laughs) that's when life changed. That was a whole nother eye-opening moment in life. Is that what decided your retirement eventually? It was, Claire. I, mean, I tried rehabbing. I had some things in my contract that I had to play X amount of tournaments and mm. I had to be ranked at a certain ranking level to get paid. And I tried to do what I could to maintain that income coming in. But at the end of it, it needed surgery. So I uh, quit playing and I did medical sales for a year, 100% commission on medical sales. So soft tissue injuries. How funny is that? ACLs, rotator cuffs labrums is something that was near and dear to my heart that took a lot of things away of what I needed to do. But in the end, it was, I think, a higher being or somebody saying, yeah, it's time for you to move on from this journey. Because as I said, you can't retire from it. And I needed to get into the professional environment and learn a trade or a skill outside of playing racquetball for a lack of better terms. So it all kind of worked out and it was the right time. It wasn't at the time. It was a pretty dark part of a couple of years of my life because everything gets taken away when things are going well. But in the end, it, it made me realize two things. At any one point in time, something can be literally taken from you, whether you like it or don't like it. So enjoy uh, the moments that you do have with something. And, um, it was a tough times, not to get sappy with it or anything like that, but it uh, definitely gave me a different view of the world and how I conduct myself in the in my professional life. Yeah. Any company tomorrow could say, "Hey, we're done." So, what do you do to plan and help yourself and your family be ready for the unexpected? Yeah, I went through my own five stages of grief after tennis went away. So. I can imagine that must have been devastating and even more so probably for you because you mentioned the last 12, 14 months, you really just figured out how to navigate the game, get your body strong, be strategic about the tournament. So it seemed like you haven't even had a chance to fully peak in the sport itself. And then the injury happened. Is that correct? I'm guessing if that would happen, you would continue playing. Yeah, that is fair. I would say I had moments of peak brilliance before, like in 2007 when I won the tournament, but there was a lot of periods of he's plateaued, he's not going to do more. And I finally had gotten to the next kind of level, right? Where I was winning matches against the number two, three players in the world that historically I didn't. I was taking them much further deeper into matches and we were having longer battles. And I was figuring out my game to do that. I didn't get to see how long I could sustain that journey I was on. Did I have moments of peak brilliance before? Sure. But it was a spike and then it went away. And like, how did you find it? How do you get it back? I was on a different trajectory at that time. Yeah. Anything else you would want to highlight from your personal career? Any big tournaments or players, matches you really proud of? I would say there's... A couple of really cool moments. I I think playing for the country and USA and it's a Pan-American game sport. I never got to play in the Pan Ams. um, So I qualified twice to play with in the Pan Ams, but given school and it's a four and a half week tournament, it was missing almost a quarter of the semester. So 
I never got to play in the Pan Ams, but I got to play a bunch of the qualifying tournaments on Team USA for that. I think that was the most fun in doubles. Winning those tournaments and being kind of the doubles world champion with my, I had two partners, Ben Croft and Jason Thorner. Those are really good memories of the sport. Outside of the one big victory in 2007, um, I would say the best tournament I ever had. I didn't win it. I made the finals and I lost in the finals, but I beat the number six player. I beat the number two player. I beat the number three player. And then I lost to the number one player in four games. I mean, that was in Allentown, Pennsylvania. That was probably the most fun tournament. And then we talked kind of about the peaks and valleys. The next tournament, I lost first round. <laughs> so, you know, how, how fun is sports, right? Um, yes. But uh, yeah, that is it. I mean, it, it was a great time in my life and I got to travel and see a lot of parts of Mexico, South America, Canada. I was in Ireland playing and Asia playing and in Korea and Japan. I got to travel the world and do a lot of fun things. And it was a great time. I would say my funniest memory of racquetball is my buddy and my doubles partner, Ben Croft and I were locked into a hotel room in Cali, Colombia. And, you know, we were immature 20 some year olds at that time. And we were hitting racquetballs off the balcony and there was a couple of Colombian cops walking around and they were looking side to side. Those were just funny moments. I mean, those are the times that you kind of miss the sports of what happens in a hotel and the travel. And because that that's as much as playing as it is anything. I'm sure you have your same stories with that. Those are the things that smile and and you miss, right? Because that, yes. I mean, the playing, what, an hour, two hours a day top, say you're competing. And then what do you do for the other 20 hours? You sleep and hang out with whoever your friends are, right? That's in the same boat with you. Yeah, I agree. The tournaments definitely united the people who were there. And those are fun memories, especially when you travel internationally. I figured that really brought in, at least for me, the Czech crowd. So whenever we would play a tournament somewhere else, you have two, three Czech girls and we just created a pack together and made us get to know each other more. So that's always fun. Yeah. Czech girls against the world, right? (laughs) Yeah. It creates this, I guess, the language and the nationality in those instances creates different perspective. Well, if I played the same tournament in Czech, I probably would never talk to them or wouldn't think of it. But then when we where just the two, three of us outside the language and the nationality in a way united us. So we really got to know each other and hang out. So that was always fun. That's great. Now you're making me remember a funny one. So Chihuahua, we played in a lot of fun areas of Mexico and not in a bad way. It's just, you know, they're not the safest, like Juarez, Chihuahua, TJ, San Luis Potosi, Guadalajara. Like I played in a lot of different places in Mexico, right? And the fans are crazy. I mean, the sport's pretty big in Mexico still for junior kids. I remember being in Chihuahua, leaving the micro hotel and, you know, three guys are sleeping in the micro hotel room. I mean, that's its own crap shoot itself, <laughs> right? But we're on the way to the club. Like, and you got to think about when you're in Mexico, can you drink the water? Can you eat? Like, uh, like all these other mental things are gone. And then yeah. they had a, like a sidewall, backwall glass with like stadium seating. And I mean, you get about a thousand people, maybe 800 people in that club. And, you know, maybe five to 600 can watch that one court. And I was playing the number two player in Mexico at the time. And it was, uh, I mean, the match, Chihuahua's at altitude, which is another fun thing to play racket sports in altitude. I don't know if you experienced that funness with tennis, but the racquetball becomes unmanageable at about 5,000 feet of elevation. Okay. At 5,000 feet, the ball becomes so stupid fast. You can't control it. Right. 
And he lives in Chihuahua, plays in Chihuahua, totally used to this court. And, you know, I'm coming from sea level and it, the place was absolutely going bananas. And they had these little rattlers that were like, like you had it and had like a clicker and you'd spin it. And I mean, they were beating on the glass when he scored points. And I remember I was down, I lost the first game. I was down in the second game. I got a bad call. I thought I got a bad call, right? Like the whole world's against me here at this point, right? (laughs) guy right and I mean I'm getting steaming I'm pissed I'm angry at this point in time so I remember going out drinking my water I kicked my Gatorade I'm so pissed right and then they started booing me and cheering me I came back and won the game and I came out opened the door and screamed and yelled and then I gave them a shh and then this place erupted Clara like erupted like every time I missed a shot they would just beat on the glass and cheer and and long story short it was the longest frustrating, tense match, but the funnest match I ever played when I look back. I ended up winning, thank God. And then I remember I just went down the wall, beating on the wall in front of like 600 people and they were booing me and cheering. And, you know, I was just, I was very obnoxious in my early 20s, I guess is the best way to say, but that was one of the, I, that one still today makes me smile, you know, when I think about it. That was a fun match. Yeah, what a way to overcome so many things there against you, including the conditions yep. and mental toughness. I can imagine the speed. I remember I played one tournament in Toluca, close to Mexico City. Yeah. A lot of the Olympic athletes come training there. And really all I did was serve and return. And I ran across the court two or three times and I was out of breath yes. because of the lack of oxygen. So I can imagine with the racquetball and the speed, do you guys have different balls at least no. for that altitude? No, wow. that's, that's the biggest shit show of it all. Clara, like literally, so you take a racquetball that's already fast at sea level. Yeah. And then you put it at 5,000 feet and then you let it go. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's, it's like another 20, 25. I mean, it feels like it, but the ball just carries because the air is so thin. I mean, it, it's a completely different game. And then the other thing, you, you know, you feel like you're breathing with one lung most of the time, right? Yes. The lack of oxygen. And it's so unfair when you play, especially someone who's lived there. there and who's growing yeah. up in these conditions. That's the same thing. I wonder now when I go hiking, right, to this Nepal or Peru, and I see these old people, they're like 65, carrying a piece of huge metal for their roof right next to me, and are smiling and happy. <laughs> and I, I'm hiking up the hill with this like half-empty bag because I was really carried by the porter. I'm like, I feel so out of shape. It's so unfair how these people have completely different capacity of lungs. I always think if we took these people and put them into sea level and made them athletes, what would be out of them? Or the same thing in Bolivia when we were in La Paz. There was like 80-year-old grandma who was walking up the street faster than me. I felt so out of shape because of the altitude. La Paz is no joke. Yeah. yeah. There was a couple of very good Bolivian players that lived in, I was in La Paz or Chukacrum. I forget what, I think that's one in the same city, but those guys would run all day. You're like, dude, are you tired yet? Cause I'm exhausted. It's interesting. I live in an Albuquerque year at, you can get up to about 5,200 to mm-hmm. 6,000 feet in elevation. So I was training in altitude. It was a huge help. Yeah. You took it for granted after a while of how valuable a altitude is to train. If anybody's real serious about doing a career and, and playing sports and you want to take it to the next level, move someplace with altitude, everything gets harder. <laughs> Mentally gets harder. Breathing gets harder. The sport gets harder. Everything gets harder. Yes. Funny. We both have had a crap shoot at altitude. 
I also remember even El Paso, I played one tournament. You made me realize that was still very different than our regular Dallas practice. And uh, even Denver, I would say my partner lived for a while in Denver. And so when I traveled back and forth to do CrossFit session on the weekend, I felt like I can't breathe. So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, Denver's a mile high. That's our advice for people. They want to ship their kid off and uh, let them play sports and uh, just ship them to like Colorado Springs at the training center or Denver and let them run around at altitude for a while. They'll be better for it. Build lung capacity, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So transitioning uh, from the racquetball journey to the next, what I call the normal civilian life and uh, your next careers that you've had. I know we talked a bit about the challenges and the transition and the medical sales field that you fell into. Curious, how did you make that transition? Why that drop? And it's such an irony. You finished this thing you love the most, tore your shoulder, and then you <laughs> go talk and work with surgeons to repair those same ligaments for others. I guess it's a noble and nice thing to do, but how did that come about? Yeah. So actually, it was my wife's uh, good friend, her husband, uh, managed a distribution for Johnson and Johnson, and he owned the New Mexico territory. And he's like, listen, man, you can talk to people, the surgeons like athletes, like talking sports and all of these things. And I needed money. So I wasn't going to be begging at this point in time. Right, Claire? Like I didn't have a job for like eight months while I was trying to rehab. Right. So I was like, okay, real world's hitting now. Right. So mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And he's like, it's a hundred percent commission. I'm like, all right, let's go. Let's see what we can make of this. Right. And uh, it was interesting, very eye opening. I was in surgeries with people and I just didn't have a lot of passion for it in the end. And being a hundred percent commission, I, I wasn't heartbroken leaving it because it, you know, you start fast forward and you're like, this is riskier than racquetball. Like we have a hospital that's doing, let's say a half a million dollars of business with us that we're getting paid a hundred pence commission on it. Tomorrow, somebody else could sign a contract with them and you're out of work. Right. So I'm like, this is, dude, I appreciate you giving me the job here, but this is going to be temporary. I'll bust my ass and help you, but I'll be looking. And so I did that for like 12 months. It was great. It was the best interim transition from playing racquetball to, as you like to call it, civilian life. That's funny because I'm still talking about sports every day. You're not checking a clock and answering a ton of emails. Like a doctor would be like, Hey, I need this case. I need you to have this stuff ready and you get it ready. So it was a nice transition. And the sale was more personal. Like you built a relationship with the doctor and the doctor goes, I like working with him just because he's not a dumbass in my OR and uh, he's respectful of my 15 or 12 years or however long of school they've done. It was fun. So I learned that literally the sales conversation was you really got to build a connection. So it was very good to start that job and figure it out because I didn't have all the BS email to deal with at that time. You get maybe 10 emails a day of different things of, hey, this promo is coming. You guys need to get this out. It was the best way to get A to B of what I was. And then how I got into telecom was I was on the board of Rackaball and the gentleman that ran Motorola, not like the CEO, but he ran Motorola for one of the carriers. And he came over to Ericsson and he called me, he says, listen, we need to hire people. I know you're not playing racquetball right now. Why don't you come and work for us in Chicago? And I was like, I really don't like Chicago. What other options you got? He says, California. 
And you'll like where I'm going with this story. I said, yeah, perfect. Let's go to California because my sister lived in the Bay Area. I'm like, ah, this is great. So I was like, all right, I'm interviewing for the job in California. Nope. Uh, Lo and behold, the person I'm talking to right now got first choice of where she wanted to move and she got to move to California. So the Dallas option was out. So I either had New Jersey or Chicago. I'm like, yeah, Chicago is better. So that's how I ended up getting at Ericsson. And Clara, you know, you and I started at the same time at Ericsson selling a a pot of gold. It was an interesting (laughs) business idea. And it was a very interesting time to start. Yeah. It was getting involved with a very large Fortune 500 company and all of the different things. And you're trying to get a product off the ground. Those were fun days, actually. You look back on it. I mean, I learned a lot. I learned how to connect with people on LinkedIn. I learned how to figure out who did what roles and all these other things. In the great scheme of it, that first, I would say, 18 months really was pretty helpful of how to kind of get A to B in corporate America, for lack of a better term. Yeah. For me, it was. I don't know if you had this experience. I agree. I mean, we had a very interesting boss at that time. And uh, I mean, I still talk to our former boss quite frequently. I enjoy chatting with him. And I'll never forget the time where it was you, Jack and Aubrey sitting there in the strategy, right? Everybody had more like real world work experience than me. And I'm, I'm over there. I'm like, yeah, right. This is great. Yeah, they got it. Like next question. So I'm sitting over there. I'm playing with the box and I will never forget Lee goes, Hey dude, uh, welcome to the real world. Stop fiddling with the box. You're going to have technical people that understand that. And I'm like, nah, dude, I, really, I need to understand how this works because, you know, like one of my hobbies is working on cars. Like, yeah. You know, I work on motors and I mean, I've modded a bunch of cars. And like, I love it. Like, I got to understand how things work. And it just, it was so funny to me. I mean, telecom was the perfect industry for me to get in because there was a lot of things that you needed to figure out and piece together and, you know, how do you weed through all of the weird stuff to really figure out what matters with it? I mean, I'll never forget that time we were sitting in that conference room and you three were over there going at it with all these strategy things. And I'm like, oh my God. And I'm just over there playing with the box, putting the antennas on. And Lee's like, do you even know where these things go? I'm like, no, but I'm figuring it out. He just lost his mind. On <laughs> lost his um, But the even funnier thing was the interview with him prior. So I was in a very good spot. I knew the boss's hiring manager, right? I got very fortunate and was very, very, very lucky. I kind of alluded to this is timing in life helps in a lot of things that you do. And uh, when I went to go interview with him, my flight was delayed from Albuquerque into Raleigh. So I was supposed to meet him for dinner that night into Raleigh. Didn't have that. My flight lands at 5.45 in the morning from Atlanta to Raleigh. I, I had to stay over. I had to get up at like 3.15, get into the airport. And then Lee, Claire, is just quizzing me like nonstop at like 545. I'm like, oh my God. And he's ready to go. Right. And I'm like, oh man, I didn't get the job. This was absolutely terrible in the interview. And it was just funny how it all kind of worked out. It was an interesting time. Uh, We had an interesting interview approach. We all went through a number of rounds, but I I, uh, agree when I interviewed with him, it was a, actually a funny story too. I was it was a Halloween. Okay. <laughs> and so I dressed up as a dead scuba diver. That was the best idea I had and clothes and stuff I didn't have to buy. And so I had this interview. I scheduled during lunch break. So I left from the office and I'm staying <laughs> in the car. And I can actually see my reflection of myself in the buildings because they were from glass. <laughs> <laughs> 
someone saw me doing this interview. I'm not, I'm not sure what they would think about. But Lee was very, um, you couldn't guess his emotions or what he's thinking. I typically know based on the interviews, am I doing good? Am I not doing good? Should I talk more or less? But Lee was very, in a way, mysterious. Even after the interview, I felt I had no idea if I actually did good or not. So good job to Lee on having his calm face and interview style. Exactly, yeah. Can I tell a funny story to your audience that follows you so they have some insight into your personality? Of course, please. (laughs) All right, so this is, I don't know, maybe eight, nine months into us trying to build a hundred million dollars. So we were all straddled with a goal of $25 million each of this vision that needed to happen of no product launch, no approved product, but you guys are going to be accountable for a hundred million dollars a year. And we're all, all green as a day is long in corporate America, right? For the most part, all of us were. Yeah. And uh, we all look in there and we're, you know, how many units did you sell today? Zero, boss. Zero, right? I mean, like, how many, how, many, how many times did we say zero week over week? And it was just unbelievable, right? Like, it was just the product was not priced right. The market was not right. Like, we were approaching it. It just, all of it was a slight train wreck. Okay, let's just, we'll leave it at that. Yeah. And, but the funny thing is, Clara got so mad one day. And this is after we were, you had like three bosses in this basically year period because everybody was trying to abort ship and jump overboard, right? Everybody was trying to run from that project and what we were supposed to be selling. Like people that had been in the industry a while, like, oh my God, that's a sinking battleship out of here, right? I think we were on like our third boss at this time. And Clara got so mad on a call one day, was just going off. And then all you heard was a click and silence. Literally, literally the call was like, Everybody was quiet. And the guy that was our <laughs> boss at that time was like, okay, I guess the call's done. And I'll never forget. I hung up. I called Jesse. I'm like, we got to go grab a beer. You got to listen to the story. It was the funniest thing. This was right at the end, right? This is when everything yeah. was going down. I mean, that Claire, that was a funny time. I mean, I'll never forget that phone call. That was unbelievably funny. It was like, yeah, okay, guys, what do you want us to do? Basically, this is dead. Like, stop. You know, the product didn't work. I mean, there were so many bad things. Yeah. It was great. So hopefully you don't edit that out because I think <laughs> it's a funny moment of my, uh, you know, me knowing you and working with you for a while at Ericsson. That was probably one of my top three funniest moments at Ericsson. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I still remember <laughs> like, when great. you described, I actually remember the call and told the meeting and there were so many things, as you mentioned, just packed on top of each other at that moment. And I was like, I have nothing to say. I think we were supposed to celebrate the progress and the victories. Yeah. <laughs> we sold the unit, celebrate, right? <laughs> yeah. And then I'm getting phone calls from customers because it's crashing and their office can't hold internet because it's restarting halfway through. <laughs> I think that was my fuse, as you mentioned. I feel in some things I actually patience is something I like in general in some things that I really care about I can be patient and there was my fuse just clicked I was like I have nothing to say anything I say at this point it's just gonna be worse I'm out yeah it was it was literally it was like (laughs) I know you slammed it I know you slammed the phone like I know it was as hard of like a swinging forehand just boom right on the dock and then I guarantee you just walked right out I mean it was It was funny. I enjoyed it. That was a good moment. 
That was funny. It was the best option I had out of all the others that were going in my head. So I leave it with <laughs> that. Where do we move from here? This anyway, so we'll funny. move on to more serious things here, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, where do you want to go next? I mean, telecom industry, your moves, exploring the athletic mindset, yeah. anything you have learned from your racquetball, and you've talked about a lot of the things already but anything you want to outline of taking that racquetball mindset and how you're applying it to sales and thriving in your telecom sales career now? Yeah, I mean, I would say probably one of the the most interesting things, and yeah, I really didn't learn it, Claire, until I left Ericsson, I would say January last year when I started working for a different company. It was never, I, I never got the no matter what we sold, whether we sold services or we sold hardware, we had these big pull-ins, you know, like all the things that we did working with Verizon and, and Ericsson. Yeah. We very lucky to work with a very good customer, right? I mean, they're a phenomenal customer in the end, end all be all yeah. of sales, right? Um, I missed the immediate win-loss type conversation, right? And a lot of the, I was searching for more of a, a hunting type role and what we were doing in I like a hunting fixing type role, right? I like either figuring it out, fixing it and moving on, or I like the hunt and getting it. And then the farming is not really for me mentality wise. And it always felt like we would get it. And then you had to farm the sale. It took me a while and I kept trying to chase things at Ericsson to get that feeling of that immediate win loss victory. And then it, it always seemed to yeah, I, I won the sale, but there was all these other back end things that needed to happen as a result of it that really diminished the fun of getting the sale, right? Mm. Because all these things had to take account for the following sale, right? Yeah. And I, I understand sales is part of post sale too. It just was less than what we were focused on doing in, in our roles there at Ericsson when you were in the account and I was, right? And yeah. It's been nice to kind of get away from some of that different uh, service sales, be more product focused and I don't have the follow-up things with product that you do selling services. It's more of a hunt and fix and grow the account and build it. And I didn't realize that that's really what I enjoy of, of work. I either like taking a problem that's busted and try fixing it. And once it's fixed, I'm like, ah, okay, that's good. I'm next question, right? Or mm-hmm. trying to build a business or turn a business around. Those are the fun things that really get me motivated because you got to be very diligent. You got to have a strategy with it and kind of relate it back to the last 12 or 14 months. So like, what is really critical that I need to focus on and to move this thing and turn it around instead of the the day-to-day more management of what we were doing with Ericsson and Verizon? I think it's just a mentally different mindset that I currently have. And I, it, it fits my personality much better. I'm, I'm much happier as a result of it. And it took me about nine years to find that. That's crazy to think that. And it had nothing to do with the company wasn't the problem or that. It was just more the role that I was doing. And it took me a while that I kept trying to chase and do more to, I'll get it, I'll figure something. It just, it was the environment and the role more than anything. And it took me a while to self-reflect. I mean, nine years sounds like a long time to self-reflect and figure that out. But I think now I have a much better view of what I like to do in the telecom industry and what motivates me, what jobs I would like to take in the future if things arise or something happens. I want to build businesses, fix businesses, and turn them over and then go back and do the same thing. I love that piece of it. I don't like the long-term day-to-day in, day management because it gets monotony and bored. It's boring to me. I like 
the challenge of the process of figuring it out because it's hard. It's a hard, long process to turn businesses around and or fix things that it's not fun. They're not fun jobs, but mentally I like the challenge of that, right? And that's kind of back to the sports things is you're figuring everything out ab live. There's never a specific outcome of any match that you ever play. You got to adapt, you got to learn and and adjust. And I gravitate to that and it was good. I found kind of a good spot for me in terms of where I'm at in my personal life. I'm married. I got three girls. I got a six-year-old, a soon-to-be four-year-old and an eight, nine-month-year-old. <laughs> I mean, I got a lot going on, right? Kind of came out of left field and I found it and it's been good so far. It's been a good 13 months right now almost. That was it. That's kind of, I don't know where I was going with that. I don't even know if that made sense other than me just talking. It made complete sense. Yeah. I would say I, because you and I had very similar career and, uh, I think racquetball and tennis are very similar in some ways. So the mindset that we train to have is how do you now pivot and adjust and how do you use the skill set to be better off what I call almost the next life, right? Your next journey. And um, the win and loss and even talking to, I just spoke with Wayne Ferreira last week. Obviously, he was way more successful than I ever was. But he made a transition to being an entrepreneur and having his own company. And it seemed like he struggled with the same thing. It's just the duration that it takes to get things done. And because we're so focused on winning, achieving, or losing, there's always an outcome. And either way, you're going to learn. You give it your best. You win. Excellent. Do you lose? Well, that sucks. What have I learned and how do I evaluate to make it better? And then you iterate your mindset you're very much in this high and lows. And so in the career, I find there are not that many lows, right? Uh, So that's, I guess, good. In a way, it makes life easier. But there's also not that many highs. I've never been able to get the same feeling that I've ever gotten from winning a tennis match. Even getting a great sale is the closest you can get to it. Yeah. And like, oh, yeah, this is really good. We did it. I achieved it. I Got a PO, it's really hard work paid off. That's the closest I've been able to feel to that, but it wears (laughs) off quite quickly. Just any win in a way. Yeah. But it's uh, it's this challenge and being mentally challenged all the time. Or once you fix it, what else do I do? What else can I fix? What is my next challenge to figure it out? Yes. Yeah. I guess the best way to explain it, Clara, is... I would be curious of how you view it now in our roles. It was, you know, you sell services and you manage a hardware and the hardware slightly manages itself when it did when we were at Ericsson, right? Mm. It was, if I had to look at another integration report and understand what happened or what went wrong, it was literally like Groundhog's Day. It was just something that I I needed to get away from. Mm. I'm curious if you've been able to get a different view and and working with like these hyperscale players and the Googles of the world, have you found a different motivator or a different thing that's kind of moved that mindset? Because I think you and I both got into the same mindset of the role. It became mm-hmm. so monotonous of you had the three same three or five things that came up weekly or at a monthly, <laughs> right? That you're like, gee, it's a systemic problem that either you guys aren't paying attention or we got a process breakdown. Yes. Like how do we... <laughs> help me explain how we get to this three times and nobody has taken the initiative to fix it. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious, is, 
What have you seen or gained as you've moved into that hyperscale Google cutting edge type technology space? Have you found something unexpected that was very pleasing to you in that regard? Or how has that worked for you? Well, I would say the move here, there were a few reasons, but even my last two jobs working with the headquarters team, responding to RFP, similar like you, now looking back, I think I've been trying to move myself closer to this development and the process and more of the hand mentality. Because as you mentioned, the repetition of we've talked about this, this problem is the same as the one the week before. Why do we keep talking about it? Let's just fix it in the permanent way and solve it. I think that cycle started being very frustrating. So I would say even my previous job was more the RFP response and hunting. There was quite a bit of achievement working together as a team. And then in this role, it is very much the hunting focus and it operates differently than the regional roles that you and I had. So I feel I have moved more towards similar direction that you have moved now it's still a bit different business. So there was one. And the second, I was more interested in the trend and the strategy and the cloud and virtualization and edge computing. And that's where all of this 5G is coming, kind of the new thing. So I felt it would be good for me to dive in into something I had no clue about and was intrigued and read a lot on the internet. And even to see how they operate and how they work and how different they are. And if the books and articles that everybody reads, is Google really Google? Is Facebook really the Facebook we think they are and the articles they write? Do they really have the same culture? So I was intrigued to figure out how true that is and how different that is in comparison to even Ericsson or working with the Verizons of the world. So just a different experience. I would say that's what I was collecting and rotating to keep learning. And as you mentioned, not be in the same process. I think the change is what brings fun. Yeah. We say strategic thing, like given that what I sell is some of the antenna infrastructure that supports spectrum that carriers deploy. There's a very strategic conversation in the cell is I sold what I needed to in 2020 for my 2021 business. So I'm a 12, 18 month conversation fully all the time out of how is this going to look? How is this going to work? Does this fit this application? I enjoy that because I'm learning how different carriers are going to deploy their networks and you know how they're going to use different spectrum and, and those things. So I'm way more removed from the day-to-day getting a network built like we used to be along to how are they going to do this and how are they going to deploy it and how can we build solutions to support that? I would say the downside of the gig that I've done now, Claire, is that you know you just get further removed from the baseband and radio, which is that drives a lot of the behavior in telecom for sure with operators, right? Mm-hmm. But the strategic part long-term of how are they going to get the spectrum? How are they going to deploy it? What are all of the site challenges that they run into to hang antennas and do this? I mean, it's kind of that every different iteration of spectrum or radio that comes out is a different problem to solve and build product and strategy around to position and help yourself. That's the fun of it for me. It's, it's literally every year you get a new vision or problem of how are they building their network and articulating it to make sure the product matches it and be ahead of the competition? That's the fun piece of it, right? And I get a little more strategic insight now 
to that in the day-to-day operation with the company I work with. So that's been some of the fun of it, right? And you talk about that strategic thing. It, it's fun. I'm, I'm learning. Am I good at it yet? Well, TBD, right? Um, but the, that's the, the fun end of it for sure. Yeah. And what you just mentioned, it seems like it's the curiosity and the learning that drives us forward. Oh, yeah. And almost understanding the bigger game, right? Whatever the bigger you call it, because there's so many ways and so many trends and different opportunities, or I don't know what the right word is. In telecom right now, you can maybe name it or threats, you can name it that way as well. But there's a lot of different trends to go and understanding the bigger piece and how the puzzle fits together. Yeah, I think that's where the strategy and the thinking is almost like understanding the game of tennis, understanding the game of racquetball, and how do you navigate in it? And at the same time, have something tangible to create achievements for yourself, your company, but also the company you're working with. So what you mentioned, that field, that mindset is something you and I have in common. Yeah. Switching gears here, you asked me, you know, I said I have a wife and three daughters and, you know, one of the questions you have and, and your two dogs are female too, right? Yeah. Yes. I'm a lone ranger. By default, I'm the alpha of the household and the dogs know that. The kids and the wife, not so much, right? It's an interesting journey with that for sure. I want to explore that by default. What do you mean by default? Oh, I'm the only male of the house. So I'm the default alpha, right? I'm that default alpha male of the house. So the dogs already love me. Now the kids, on the other hand, they look at me a little differently. They're like, yeah, I don't know. Mom said this. We're, we're siding with mom over here, right? <laughs> yeah, you got a bowl of fun uh, in your home now. So yeah. five female living in one house and a midge. No, six. Six with the dog, right? It's fun. Keeps me young. So how do you see the world evolving for them? And how are you raising your daughters towards sports or? I think from a teaching standpoint, not be apologetic for things, but learn kind of right or wrong. You don't need to tell me sorry when you do it. We'll figure out it's wrong. Don't do it again. Last thing I want is a girl to be apologetic all the time. It's hard, I think, to be a woman in business and other things. And you don't need to apologize if you say something that's not popular. It's okay. Everybody will get over it. Don't feel the need to say that. So that's one kind of mentality. And it's okay to accept, not accept. And like, for instance, sports. I mean, I'll give you a, a funny example. So here's my Saturdays, right? So my Saturday is uh, wake up six. So like all my kids, bless their heart, 515, the whole house is full tilt. Okay, 515, all days of the week, Monday through Sunday, full tilt. Jesse and I sit there at the couch at eight o'clock, look at each other. And 90% of the time we fall asleep on the couch together. We're just like, holy shit, the day just is going to start here in like T minus eight hours, right? I mean, it's literally the, the house is full tilt. Dogs, kids at 515, somebody's crying. Somebody's not happy about something. Or, you know, obviously the baby's frustrated. She's teething right now. So she's irritable, right? Anyway, where I'm going with this, it's Saturday. We've been already up for, as a family unit for about two and a half hours, right? And we're going to play sports. And I'm like, you know, JJ, you like, you got to start taking the ball from people, sweetie. Like in the sports, there's a clear winner and loser every day. It's okay if you lose. It should make you mad if you lose, right? Make you unhappy. It's not fun. Nobody likes to lose, like, but you need to work to win. And so she's figuring out the soccer thing, which is so fun she figured out how to take the ball from somebody. And now she's like crazy aggressive to want to take the ball. And like, I'm encouraging her. I'm the only dad over there. And I'm like, JJ, go get the ball, girl, get it. Right. And it's so funny. It's like, I'm almost like, man, that dad's a little aggressive. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, man, 
Yeah, JJ, we don't share the ball. Like, I mean, like, go get it. Like, go get it and score, right? So it's so funny. Like, and then uh, I love it. It's bred this whole conversation now where everybody's like, geez, Mitch, like, are you going to get crazy here at the sports with the team? I'm like, well, you guys need to step up and start cheering for them, getting them to work a little harder. So, you know, it, it's fun. I mean, it's, um, but I guess the takeaway of where I was going with that, like, I'm teaching them is I think that sports are the greatest. Thing that kids can be involved in, whether they're athletic, they're not athletic, whether they do it for a living, they don't, they just enjoy it. There is such lessons to be learned, whether it's team sports, individual sports, and I think playing both are critical, right? Because you're being a team sport where somebody is going to let you down on your team, or you're going to be the person to let the team down. And you got to figure out and feel what that is. Like, you eventually one day will understand what that feels. Nobody likes it. And then you have to self-reflect of, hmm, did I prepare? Did I do what I needed to do to be successful? Right. And then, yeah. you know, the individual sport, you got nobody but yourself, but to blame, right? Like if it goes good, more than likely either you got really lucky, which I don't really like the word luck in some respects, right? Some things fall correctly, but most of the time you kind of create your own luck in individual sports for the most part. Yeah. There's definitely in the Williams household with the six-year-old and soon to be four-year-old, there is a, we play sports to win. And you step on the field with a purpose to win. And if it's okay, if we lose, it's great. No hard feelings, right? Everything's good. You do. You like the way it feels. Do you not like the way it feels? Right. And you know, if they don't like the sport, I don't let them play. Like, you know, JJ for a while got really into tennis and loves to play it still, but she would want to hit the ball like two times a day. So we're out hitting the ball two times a day. And I say, Hey, you still want to hit it? She's like, no, dad, I kind of want to kick soccer balls. I'm like, okay, cool. We'll go kick soccer balls. Right. So I'm not a big one of God, I want her to play tennis and be really good at it, right? Just secretly, because I want to have somebody to knock tennis balls around with when I'm, when she's like 13 or 14, right? Get some enjoyment out of it. But it, you know, if she ends up being liking soccer or who knows whatever else she tries. But my big thing is I want them to learn that we don't play it just for fun. Like, yes, you have fun, but there's a purpose. Like understand the purpose of what you're doing out there, right? Yeah. I don't think six and, and certain ages are too young to teach them that, right? I, I think we cower away from helping our girls in society understand that, you know, there's a purpose and there's a win and loss and we don't all just pick daisies and high five each other and we have fun. I think it's healthy to have a, you know, a strong-minded woman that wants to win and be successful at things. I I encourage it big time, big time in my life with them. Yeah. Thank you much. And for all you shared, this is so important. Hopefully people listen and, uh, take your examples uh, to heart and maybe apply them and uh, agree with the win and loss, even teaching kids early at this age. And especially now I feel when sometimes kids, even we started doing this in Czech Republic. Now I'm hearing from my cousin is everybody gets a participation trophy. <laughs> I'm really against this mindset as like trophies are only for winners. If you show up, fine you show up you're there that's commitment which is part of it but you're not gonna get a trophy for just participating i think learning how to deal with the wins and losses maybe more even importantly with losses is super important in life and if we help kids learn it and understand it and how to deal with yeah i lost this wasn't really good how do i overcome it and uh, as you mentioned, work harder next time to be better and not lose. Maybe don't become last, be in the middle of the pack and work hard until you get to the front of the back. I think there's super important 
characteristics to learn. And the younger I think we can learn it, the better it is. I think the more head start you will get in life. Yeah, I'm a little easier with my three-year-old going on with my four-year-old, right? I'm just happy she kicked the ball, right? But like the six-year-old, she knows now. She knows what scoring goals means and how it feels and like, so I'm, I'm a little, little more direct, right? So I mean, it's not like yeah. I'm, I'm out there telling my three-year-olds, hey, you missed the goal, go run a line, right? <laughs> no, it seems like you have a really good balance. I want to commend you on that because that's really hard and also not pushing them to one direction or the other. So it seems like you're applying similar things. What worked for you is try things, see where your passion is. And if that is something you want to do, it is important to work hard, put in energy and care about it and i'm sure as they grow through it you go from oh this is just for fun for joy to if we want to be more serious let's build a more structured approach to it and start working harder yeah come talk to me in like seven years or six years and see how things are doing on my things are easy right now in the teenage years who knows right i mean like we'll figure it out when we get there that's kind of the fun of parenting right is there is no playbook like every situation is different but yeah i mean so far, it seems I'm doing good. Check back in with me in six years to see if we're doing okay. <laughs> you know? Sounds good. I think you seem like you have a good awareness, even built from the racquetball sport. And I trust you'll master the game of raising three powerful and strong and intelligent and talented women. So I'm cheering for you and the family. I'm hoping. Well, Claire, this was a, a lot of fun today. I appreciate it chatting like this. this. This is good. I had a blast. This is so much fun talking to you, Mitch. And uh, there are so many things we can discuss. Maybe we'll do a next round at some point of time. But thank you for letting me into your life, telling me more about your story and the listeners. And uh, I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Anything else you would want to close on as you look towards 2021 and I think you see we should be doing more or less of I just I want to get stabbed in the arm with a shot and have the world get back to normal I can start talking to people face to face instead of wearing a mask I mean it's just like not knowing if my kid's gonna you know do this virtual learning from a laptop which is a complete joke and a farce right I mean like I, I just want the world to get back to to, to, to normal and whatever sanity that that includes right I mean that's I'm you know this isn't fun and working at a desk all day and not having humor you know face-to-face human interaction right I mean the good news is it's allowed me to get really close to the kids that you know I never really was like I've actually got to see my my youngest kind of grow up which is crazy right like you know I was always moving and starting new jobs and you know, I come home and she was already in bed most of the nights. Right. So, I mean, I've got to actually like inter- interact with a baby. Like, I mean, I'm glad I only had to do it once. Bless my wife's heart. Jesse's Jesse's a rock star because God help me. I would have not have been good with that with three. Right. But um, I mean that, yeah, that, that's it. Just, I'm a, I just wish 2021 gets back to a more normal world, I guess is the best way to say it. Yeah, I do too. I think we all hope for that. The masks are getting tiring. Hopefully the vaccine will get distributed faster and it works. I'm keeping my hopes that this year we will be able to take the masks off, but let's see how it works out. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, 
I mean, it, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it, it's, I don't even recognize people after I'm like, oh yeah. Hey, how you? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yep. There you go. Right. It's anyway, not that we need to dive into that whole nonsense of, of things, but that, I mean, you asked what my wish is for 2021. That's it. Just, no. just get, get things back to, to, I can go actually have a beer with a mask off and chat with people. Cause that's really the fun of what we do is, I mean, talking to people face to face without having a mask—that <laughs> that is social interaction at its finest, right? Yeah. I mean, like, I like this, this whole new world of sales with Zoom and all this stuff. Like, I mean, I, I've even Clara. I mean, like, you know, you got to be careful with it, right? But I mean, like, people that I've known and worked with for a while with Zoom. I mean, I'll come in with my hat on backwards and you know something funny on, and you know just something just to get the monotony of all of this stupid WebEx type meeting stuff broke. Right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's, it's just fun. I try to, I try to create an environment that, that at least for the first minute, people are like, huh, that's different. Yeah. Right. Because it, it's, it, if, if not, it's just like another WebEx. Great. Great. I love that idea. Thanks for the innovation and capturing attention. Yeah. And I'm sure that helps even with the Zoom fatigue and all of the virtual calls we have yeah. spike up the regular boring calls with something fun. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, yeah, just something to spice up life, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, you gotta be careful. It's not, you can do this to everybody, but I mean, it's, uh, uh, I was messing with the guys I had. I built like a, a little sign when, you know, of a barbecue place that we like to eat at. Right. And I, I like photoshopped it and I put my other computer in front of it. Right. So it looked like the sign and, you know, just stupid little things. Right. Like, I mean, you know, it's just anyway, we're, we're off track now for sure. I'm being goofy and silly. So I enjoy it. Good job with the ideas. What type of pup? You have a Rajesian, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Rajesian Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I got, yeah, I don't know what type of mutt I just got. This thing is, uh, this thing looks like Scooby-Doo. Oh, that's just funny because when we go out for walks with Allie, everybody calls her Scooby-Doo. We get it, seems like, at least once a week. I was like, oh my God, Scooby-Doo is here. Yeah. yeah. Um, Even Tiffany blue is my favorite color. So she even has a Tiffany blue color around her neck. I guess that, that helps. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. It's a shepherd mix of some sort. But I mean, it's uh You got to do the dog version of the 23 and me, whatever that is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, good times, good times. Thank you much again for your discussion and sharing all the fun stories and experiences with me. We'll chat soon. Keep in touch. Good luck with your house full of women and uh I'm cheering for them all to grow up and do awesome and talented and strong leaders yeah yeah i'll be watching from the sideline and helping any way i can with there, we go. Advice there we go or not yeah you know my, my my one goal is to have one of them that still likes me when they get older so they want to take care of me that's my one goal <laughs> in life right i love that that's a good goal <laughs> yeah all right uh, good times all right cool. claire have a good day thank you bye-bye mm-hmm.